Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. It's been quite a couple of weeks in the world, and tech headlines are at the top of news feeds. This morning, as I record this, the big news is Elon Musk's decision to reactivate former President Donald Trump's account on Twitter. Trump was removed after he incited an insurrection at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, an event that is widely understood to have been significantly initiated by a single tweet that cascaded across the country as a set of instructions to his supporters, who were convinced by his lies that the election was stolen. But while I don't have to convince Tech Policy Press listeners that tech has an impact on society, every now and again a book comes along that puts that impact in historical perspective. Today we're going to hear from the editor of, and two authors included in, a book of essays about how particular bits of software have changed the world in different ways. I'm Tori Bosch, uh, and I'm the editor of Future Tense, which is a partnership of Slate Magazine, Arizona State University, and New America that focuses on the intersection of technology, policy, and society. And I'm also the editor of You Are Not Expected to Understand This, How 26 Lines of Code Changed the World, which was just published by Princeton University Press. I'm Meredith Broussard. I teach data journalism at NYU. I'm also the research director at the NYU Alliance for Public Interest Technology. I am the author of an upcoming book called More Than a Glitch, Confronting Race, Gender, and Ability Bias in Tech. And I was fortunate enough to be able to contribute an essay to 26 Lines of Code that Changed the World. Charlton McElwain, Vice Provost for Faculty at New York University, also a Professor of Media, Culture, and Communication, author of a fairly recent book, Black Software, the Internet and Racial Justice from the Afronet to Black Lives Matter, and a happy contributor to this important volume. This is an incredible book. You are not expected to understand this, how 26 lines of code changed the world. It's kind of a tech and society Voltron of amazing writers who've come together to kind of produce this just wild uh, volume, a slim volume. I'm holding it in my hand right now, um, but just chock full of really interesting stuff and I think really impactful stuff. And Tori, I want to kind of talk a little bit about the impetus for this book, but maybe I can ask you to start by talking about your mom. Sure. So my mother, who would love this, incidentally, if she were still around, um, was a brilliant woman who learned how to program in the 1970s as a consultant after she got her MBA from Wharton. Uh, And so in my house, computers were a girl thing. She was the one who brought a computer into our household in, I think, 1994 or so. We bounced around between Prodigy and AOL and CompuServe and the other service providers, you know, based on whoever was offering a great discount at the time. And my father and my brothers were utterly uninterested in anything to do with the technology, which was great because I got to spend a whole lot of time on that really very unpowerful computer, but that sort of opened up this whole new world to me. 
she also, during her time as a programmer in the 70s, you know, asked somebody, you know, is it going to be a problem someday that we're only putting two integers for the year? You know, what's going to happen when we hit 2000? And uh, her teacher at the time said, oh, you know what? That's going to be somebody else's problem. We don't have to worry about it. Um, and when Y2K came, she was feeling really smug about that, as she should have. Well, certainly her influence shaped uh, your trajectory and led you into your field of, of interest in journalism. Um, and I understand this book is based on a 2019 Slate article, The Lines of Code That Changed Everything. What led you to kind of draw together all of these great experts? So the initial project that inspired this, um, that we published, as you said, in 2019, um, came out of an idea by Loen Liu, who was at the time the deputy editor of Slate and is now at the New York Times. Uh, we miss him very dearly. And we had been talking a lot about the VW emission scandal, the Boeing crashes, you know, and all sorts of places where it seemed that coding mistakes had just, or purposefully, you know, immoral or unethical coding had created these problems that people hadn't foreseen. And so Loen's idea was to you know, create this really long list of consequential coding decisions. And so what we did was we surveyed a few hundred experts in technology, historians of technology. Meredith and Charlton were both part of this group. And I asked them, you know, what is a line of code that was really consequential? And everyone very quickly told me that the way we were thinking about it was far too narrow and that it wouldn't actually be very useful to just have a long list of individual lines of code and be narrow about them. What they all told us was, you, you need to take a bigger picture approach to that. And so what we ended up doing first with the Slate article and now with this anthology was taking a much bigger look at software development and different kinds of code influenced projects so instead of being really narrow on just here's one line where someone made a mistake and missed something, um, we've taken a much bigger approach. And I think that's made it a, a much richer text and has also offered us a real opportunity to look at who makes coding decisions, the environments in which coders work, uh, and the bigger implications that their work has for all of us. And of course, uh, Loan Liu is one of the contributors to the book, uh, wrote about the code that, quote unquote, launched a million videos of cats interacting with the Roomba automated vacuum, just one of many uh, amusing and fascinating essays that are in this. You've got James Grimmelman on four lines of Perl code on a t-shirt that featured an encryption algorithm worn by activists concerned about privacy and security. Ellen Stefan, Nick Partridge on the Apollo 11 lunar modules code. Josephine Wolf on Heartbleed, uh, the security bug in the OpenSSL cryptography library. Uh, Hani Farid on the JPEG standard which he calls the unsung hero of the digital revolution, Will Aramis on the curse of the awesome button, kind of potted history of the Facebook like. Ethan Zuckerman on his regrets about the pop-up ad. Uh, just so much in this book, a really an incredible page turner, if I can say so, uh, for someone who's curious about the impact of tech on society. But uh, Charlton, I want to come to you because you also kind of take us back a bit in time into the history of the first police beat algorithm. Yes, indeed. I um, came across that as I was researching for Black Software. And what really impacted me was thinking about really the present and how, to, how we got to where we were. And so thinking about things like surveillance in communities of color and facial recognition and discovering, of course, that uh, 
you know, none of this was new. And so I was interested to understand how did we get here from some beginning point? And that beginning point for me was the police beat algorithm, which was an attempt to solve a, uh, a problem uh, with newly found powers of computing to say, how do we really maximize the work of police officers in solving crime? And so a very real problem of uh, how to allocate police resources ends up becoming the basis and foundation for what we now have as a uh, sort of a, a criminal justice information system network that surveils and overly polices and criminalizes communities of color. And so discovering that link over this period of time uh, was fascinating for me. So you take us back to the 1960s to, you know, then computing dominant company IBM uh, and a man named Saul Gass. Yeah, Saul Gass was an interesting, um, interesting guy, um, was a professor and uh, operations researcher uh, was his uh, title. He was at MIT and spent his time basically bounced around between MIT and IBM and running all of their software services programs for the federal government. And so being involved in things like Project Mercury and um, really running those big uh, defense-focused programs for the U.S. government. And so when it came time in the mid-60s and Lyndon Johnson looked around and said, how do we solve this massive problem of crime in this country? He looked to gas and these newfound uh, powers of computing to say, can you help? And if so, how can computers help us? And so gas was the one who uh, really formulated the rationale and kind of questions for trying to solve this problem computationally. And so the police beat algorithm was a breakdown of this computational problem for gas. And then the solution to that problem ends up being the police beat algorithm and gives us that blueprint for how to think about breaking up police resources into geographical spaces and then really maximizing uh, the variables of race and racial demographics and other interesting characteristics of neighborhoods as a way to think about how do we best police communities and solve crime. Of course, all of those had a laser focus in the mid-1960s already on Black communities primarily. And the system was implemented in Kansas City in 1968? It was a program that they called Alert 2, um, which had essentially converted the police beat algorithm into a larger criminal justice information system, which is what they called it and referred to it in those days. And it was a system of networked computers, the primary one being in uh, the Kansas City Police Department, but it was connected to neighboring police departments in um, neighboring counties uh, and even a few states. And then more importantly, connected to the FBI criminal uh, information system at the time. Uh, and so what this system did, it seemed to be a uh, sort of a benign database where people were just doing routine police work, entering in data about arrests, people who had warrants, people who were suspected of crime, so on and so forth. 
And in less than about a year, they had started to really shift their focus from uh, this thing that just collected data and helped bureaucrats do better police work to doing things like forecasting and trying to predict where and when crime would happen and therefore how to allocate police resources to help um, prevent those crimes. And as you can imagine, uh, this ends up being a prediction that's really a self-fulfilling prophecy as they find that most of this crime is predicted to take place in Black neighborhoods and therefore over-policing those neighborhoods and then uh, the self-fulfilling prophecy of more arrests, more crimes, uh, so to speak, um, being committed, uh, so on and so forth. And then fast forward through the 1970s, where these kinds of systems then explode throughout every uh, state in the United States, uh, including U.S. territories, uh, and really provides that infrastructure for what becomes a later criminal justice network database infrastructure and surveillance infrastructure and so on. Have we learned anything? It sounds awfully similar to the deployment of a lot of different surveillance tech presently. I think if we learn anything, it's how to do that better. Um, I don't think we've learned much about what damage it's caused, how it all went awry. I think it has over the years shown us how can we do this better? How can we really maximize the kind of data around race, racial segregation, and geography, um, roll that into our technological systems, and therefore really laser focus on the people that we think uh, most commit crime and therefore the folks that we should really be policing? Meredith, I want to come to you. You start your essay with the story of a 40-year-old technical writer in something called the Ministry of Supply in London who made a surprising announcement. Yes, my essay uh, begins with the story of Jonathan Ferguson, who in 1958 announced his gender transition. And the way that I like to imagine it is... I like to imagine somebody with a fountain pen amending the official register with a flourish and they're kind of being, you know, confetti and all kinds of wonderful stuff to celebrate Jonathan Ferguson. And I learned about Jonathan Ferguson from a paper by uh, scholar Mar Hicks. And to me, Ferguson's case shows us how Ideas about gender that come from the 1950s are still embedded in today's computational systems. So when Ferguson transitioned, you know, it was the official register. And nowadays, uh, somebody who transitions has to fill out a lot of forms, has to update their information in every database. And the databases are not set up for gender to be editable, by and large. And so I got really interested in this topic after talking to Jonathan Van Ness. Uh, so I was on their podcast, Getting Curious, and we were chatting afterward. And I happened to mention something about you know how gender is encoded as a binary in most databases, how it's literally a zero or a one. Uh, so it's not just like the construct of the gender binary that we all know is, you know, is not actually binary anymore, but it's a spectrum. But 
the 1950s idea that gender was binary and fixed has literally been encoded in our systems. And so I asked Jonathan, oh, is this something that people talk about? And uh, Jonathan said, no, we just deal with the hassle and the misgendering and the microaggressions. And I said, well, that's, you know, that's terrible. And I started learning more about the topic. And I realized that this is something that is not talked about enough. So I started reading more, I started thinking more, and I was delighted to discover that NYU, my employer, is one of the places that is most progressive in the country about representing gender in its databases. So a few years ago, NYU launched a big project to not only make gender a field that was editable, by users of the system, but also to make sure that all the other systems are up to date. So what do I mean by that? So at a place like a university or at any large organization, there's always a central uh, database system that everything feeds off of. So at a university, it's called a student information system. And everything else, like you know, the appointment system at the dentist's office or the system that they use, that professors use to input your grades. All of these different systems feed off of the central student information system, the SAS. And so what you need to do is not only update the central system, but update all of those subsidiary systems as well. Because when you go and you make an appointment at the dentist, they're going to see the name that is pulled from the original system and you need to update things so that students are not being dead named at the dentist's office, for example. This is a challenge. It is not difficult to do computationally, but it is. it does require a lot of work. It requires a lot of money. It requires a lot of effort. And in part, that's because it's not just about changing the field because a field has a type and the type is always either binary or number or string, meaning letter or word. And so if you try and send a binary to a system that is expecting a string, it will fail, right? So we have, our lives are governed by these incredibly complex computational systems that were set up way back when because universities have been computationally enabled since at least the 60s, right? And, you know, we haven't updated things a ton since the 60s, honestly. Like if you uh, if you kind of poke the surface and look into which uh, major companies are still using legacy systems, you'll be totally horrified. If you knew how many banks and insurance agencies or insurance companies are still using these mainframe systems that run on Fortran, like you would be horrified. So it's not just about the legacy technologies. It's also about the human decisions and the human value systems that are encoded into these systems. And we really need to update our computational systems periodically the same way that we update our thinking as human beings. You write that the first mention of gender in an association for computing machinery paper was in 1958. It was sort of a technical thing, again, about, I suppose, that binary. Um, you reference a paper by 
Oz Keys that says essentially the top academic work on automated gender recognition from 1995 through 2017 found that the overall assumption is that gender is binary, immutable, and or physiological. So these assumptions are still very much with us. Very much so. In fact, one of the things that alarmed me was looking at computational history, looking through the history of papers written in computer science and noticing that the problem of representing gender really only comes up in translation. So people worried a lot about, okay, well, when we're translating from, uh, say, Spanish to English using a computer, how are we going to to represent gendered pronouns? Because English doesn't have gendered pronouns, but Spanish does have gendered pronouns. But there was no there was no mainstream acknowledgement that we really need to update our computational systems to represent people's realities. And I run into this a lot because. So as a woman computer scientist, if I get written about in a different language and then I run it through Google Translate to see, oh, what did they write? I almost always get misgendered because the default for computer scientists is apparently male. You write, lines of code can change the world. Absolutely. And celebrating that fact, we need to also look at the way lines of code make culture incarnate and make social change harder. Tori, that feels like the message of this book on some level. Absolutely. And when, when Meredith sent me her the first draft of the piece with that line, I said, well, well, now we know how the book ends because it was just the sort of perfect final essay. Um, it's largely set up in chronological order, uh, but there was just nowhere we could have put that essay besides giving Meredith the final word. And it really, that's, the as you say, the driving point that I think for non-technical people, um, I count myself as one. I took a single coding class in high school and it was a disaster for everybody involved. And I learned coding was not for me. So I am, despite the fact that I'm a tech journalist, not a technical person. And I think for non-technical people, especially those who don't think about these issues regularly, it really feels like technology is inevitable, that there is a right answer and Technologists are working together to figure out the solution and implement it. And then we just keep going forward. And that's progress. Um, It's harder to wrap your head around the fact that every single part of tech design involves decisions. And it's those little decisions that people just don't think about. It's where you're not even questioning whether gender is a binary because it's the 1950s. um, And so that's what you encode. And you're not thinking about the long-term consequences, you know, just like the coding instructor told my mother, well, someone else will deal with that. Um, that's an example of how even when people see the problems, it feels like they're up against these giant systems and you know, things have become sort of locked in and they can't change them. And so, right, as you say, the idea is to help people think harder about how we design tech and um, what values we want it to represent and how to fix it when it doesn't represent those values. I'd love to ask each of you, is there a favorite essay that you have uh, that's not your own, one that you know you found particularly compelling? Well, I can't say because there are 29 contributors to this book. So 26 essays, two are written by two people. And we have an introduction by the absolutely amazing Ellen Ullman. And I think if I said a favorite essay, um, I would be a bad parent because there are no favorites. Everyone is wonderful. Everyone contributes something valuable. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow suit and, and not uh, pick a favorite, but I will have to say Meredith was one of the most enlightening for me because I think that 
it really, even more than my own essay, took away from this the ways in which the consequences follow us throughout history in our computational systems, but also very powerfully in the way that we think about the constructs that are being encoded uh, in those systems. And, you know, to see that laid bare so explicitly in going back to the 1950s and being able to follow and trace those decisions and consequences, uh, I think is is uh, so powerful and uh, um, I think so illustrative of both the problem and consequences. Charlton, thank you so much for that. That's really kind. And I... I am going to say that, like Tori, I would have trouble picking a uh, picking a favorite. Uh, there are so many uh, friends and people whose work I really respect who are represented in this volume. I will say that uh, Charlton's work on the origins of policing has been really influential for me personally. Uh, so two of the chapters in my new book are about policing technology and about surveillance. And Charlton's book, Black Software, and his work on the origins of racialized policing technology was something that I went back to over and over again, because Charlton, I really like the way you identify kind of the moment when these forces came together. So it was the war on drugs it was, you know, enormous funding being pumped into the military industrial complex. It was people with these, with this newfangled new computing technology who were looking for a way to use it and said, oh, hey, let's, uh, let's be tough on crime. And hey, we happen to have all of this government money. We have these racist views that we don't think are racist, but really are racist. And uh, we're going to just use our newfangled new technology to oppress people. And they thought it was a really good idea at the time. And you can just see in your work the way that this comes together. And you can see how it haunts us to this day. And so that's something I really love about this essay. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, to some extent, I guess another message of this is just this enormous technical debt that apparently we've accrued as a species. And I suppose uh, that will hopefully create a lot of jobs for people who have to go and fix those things. But I guess maybe last thing, one of the things I learned in your essay in particular, Meredith, was, you know, the impact of law. Uh, So you point out, of course, that when same-sex marriage was legalized in the United States, it required the changing of thousands of database schemas so I assume, you know, there's a, a bigger story here as well about uh, the way that our, our legal and regulatory structures also sort of permit some of this technical debt to persist uh, or not. Well, one of the things that I found kind of charming about that particular moment in technology is that Tori mentioned earlier the Y2K problem. So when same-sex marriage was legalized, the switch in the databases was known as Y2K, which I think is just a terrific name. And it was another moment when you realize, oh yeah, there were deliberate social choices that were made and were included into our systems And now it's going to be really expensive and time-consuming to shift that around. It is, by the way, 100% worth it. And, you know, none of us can see the future. 
I mean, we can we can try and make really good decisions about how we design our computational systems for the future, but we can't see the future. And what we're left with is having to design for how things are today. And we just have to make peace with the fact that we are going to have to fund changes in the future, which is very much not what we thought the computational revolution was going to be. Like we thought that writing code was going to mean set it and forget it. We thought it was going to mean write once, run anywhere, and then we were going to be able to wander off and go along our merry way. And it turns out that that is not actually the case, that our computational systems need constant maintenance, constant improvement. And as society changes, we have to update our computational systems as well. So, Tori, we can't kick this down the road to some other engineer in the future. No, I, I hope that engineer was still sort of around and maybe feeling a little chagrined um, when he told my mother, someone else will deal with that. Or maybe he just really stocked up uh, in 1999. Maybe he was ready for everything to fall apart. And if I may, just one thing I'd want to say about the book, too, is that one of the things that makes it special and I, I think also really difficult to choose a favorite for me, even you know, in my heart, um, even if I didn't tell people, is that there's uh, there's sort of several tracks here. So we have this really wonderful track of essays, um, probably a half dozen or, or so that look at this kind of identity and look at human bias and look at gender and race. And those are just, you know perhaps the most important messages in the book. Um, we also have a kind of like more fun sort of commercialization track where we talk about the Roomba and the pop-up ad and things like that. We talk about ethics. So there's an essay by Lee Vinsel on the VW emission scandal. Um, there's the essay too that I really don't want to not mention by David Castle that gives the book its name. Um, it's about um, a famous comment left in the Unix source code in 1975 when a programmer wrote, you are not expected to understand this. And it was just meant to be, don't worry about this. I fixed the thing. It's so small as to be completely unimportant to you, programmer reading this in the future. But as people found that little comment in the code, um, it became this sort of rallying cry for programmers who started putting it on T-shirts and posters and using it as... Um, as a form of identity expression, as I am someone who codes, I understand something that you, person who does not code, does not. And it's kind of really illuminating and, and fun at the same time to read about how wildly misunderstood this comment about who and who is not expected to understand code ended up being. And I mean, the goal really is to be a way to help people realize that even if you don't know, you know your pearl from your ruby, you can understand the way we all need to think about code and how it affects our lives. Well, just an absolutely fantastic book, fun book, and uh, certainly enlightening. I appreciate so much the three of you joining me here today uh, to talk about it and encourage Tech Policy Press readers to go out and, and check it out. Uh, you are not expected to understand this, how 26 lines of code changed the world, edited by Tori Bosch. Uh, thank you so much, Tori, Meredith, and Charlton. Thank, thank you, Justin. You. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my guests. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. And thank you for listening.
Saucy Press.